Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Pinato. Today's sermon is entitled, God's Curse. That's a picture of God from Michelangelo's paintings of the Sistine Chapel. I believe this is on depicting the day when God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. You can see the, the, the sun there on his, is that his right hand? And the moon there back to his, on his left. Do you like that? Do you like that image? Do you like that face? No? A little? A little bit angry, right? I mean, can, can you tell? I mean, a little, a little frown, a little frown on his face or, or scolding or a little scowl on his, on his forehead there. You know, images of God are varied and numerous out there. Who God is, what, what he looks like, or what his, what his character is like. Images of God can, can be largely informed by cultural surroundings. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm Hispanic. My dad is from Colombia, South America. My mother is from Honduras, South America. And the religion that is dominant in Latin America is the Catholic faith. And even though my father was a third-generation Seventh-day Adventist, and my mom became an Adventist later on, and I was born into the Seventh-day Adventist church, yet believe it or not, cultural ideas of who God is uh, seemed to seep into my early understanding of, of, of who God was. And so being from this, this Catholic, uh, largely Catholic mindset of who God is, God is, a, is an angry God. Um, God is actually, he's, he's so angry that, that we need two intercessors, right? Jesus isn't enough. We also need Mary to be the intercessor between us and Jesus and then Jesus and, and, and God. And, and so we're, we, we have this image that we're afraid of God, that, that God is someone who, who burns people in hell for their mistakes. And then some believe that he does it for eternity, and so sure enough, if that's what your belief is, if you say you stole the little piece of candy when you were seven years old, and that's uh, thou shalt not steal, so that is a sin that's against the commandments, and then for some reason your life is taken away, and you don't repent of that sin, you will be burning in hell forever and ever and ever. Does that sound like justice? Does that sound Right? In fact, many atheists point this out as that that's the reason why they are atheists. That's the reason why they can't believe in God, because they argue that Christians believe in an eternal burning hell. And what kind of God would burn people forever and ever and ever? What kind of God do we serve? Is God a severe God? Is God someone who is waiting to just strike us down anytime we make a mistake or commit a sin? Is God the type of being that is looking for us to fail? Is God a being who likes us to beg Him for things before He grants us what we ask for? Should we be afraid of God? Is God capricious? Is He, is he fickle? Has God abandoned the world? Or is He still with us? Or... Has he left this world a long time ago? William Miller, which was one of the pioneers of the Advent movement, uh, before he became a Baptist preacher, he was a deist. And that's exactly what deists believe. Uh, William Miller believed that God had left this world a long time ago, and he created it maybe, and then he left us to our own devices. 
In fact, some detractors of Christianity will cite such passages such as these. Are you ready for them? I don't know if you've read them in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. Here the Lord says to Saul, Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death who? Men? Well, that's all right, right? Because men can sometimes be scoundrels, right? That's okay, right? No, men and women. Wait a minute. Wait a minute now. And children and infants. And it doesn't even stop there, but then animals as well. Cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. And, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a place in, in Deuteronomy where God says, even cut down all the trees and all, their, all the crops and everything that they have. Cut it all down, burn it all down, destroy it all. If something like this happened today, what would, what would we call something like this? Genocide, an atrocity. Do things like this happen today? They sure do. And yet here it's God who's telling the Israelites to do that to the Amalekites. What, what kind of God is it that we serve? Detractors of Christianity will cite such passages. Here's another one. Maybe this should be our call to worship one of these days. It's found in the Psalms. And it says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It's in the Bible. Psalm 137 and verse 9. The King James Version, it says, who dasheth. Dasheth. We actually have a dasher with us this morning. Who dashes them against their rocks. What kind of God is it that we serve? And so why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, we have this passage where God pronounces curses. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I think I asked this question a few, uh, maybe a few weeks ago. How many of you like snakes? All right, only like two people. Yeah, right? You know, is this fair? God curses the snakes. Is this fair? Some of you will say, the majority will say, yes, that's okay. No problem with that. We're all right with that. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 16, and to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. All right, Lord, now we're all right with you cursing cursing the snakes. We're all right with that, but, but God, what is this all about? You're making my pains in childbearing very severe. Any women? Can I hear any amens? What's going on here? Verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and you ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. As we see this passages of curses that God is pronouncing, what kind of, what kind of God is it that, that, that we serve that will curse animals, that will curse women, that will curse men, that will curse the ground? 
Or is God really cursing the ground and women and serpents and men in this passage? Is God really the one who is cursing this world? Let's take a closer look at the passage, can we? Is God the agency of the curse in this passage? Is God a a God who curses others in this passage? Well, there's really only two places, or actually only one place, uh, where God says, I will. That's in verse 16. Women, I will make your pains. Um, He actually uses it also probably in verse 15. Well, he says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. Only these two places where God says, I am the one that's going to do this. But in all the other places, he simply says, there's a curse here. There's a curse. Is God a God who curses others? Is God the agency of the curse here? Is God the one who is pronouncing the curses here? Some will say, and according to verse 16, he'll say exactly that God is the agency of cursing here. For example, women, you have severe pain in childbearing, and and, and, and husband will rule over you, and, and that's the way God intended it to be. It's God-ordained. Or is it? And we've considered this in a previous sermon. I would just refer you to my podcast there because we considered this passage here. Now, don't get me wrong here. God does indeed punish. Punishment is an aspect of justice. It's a severe and it's a harsh aspect, but punishment is an aspect of justice and punishment is necessary. When there are no consequences, now, if you forgive me uh, if I use a lot of these illustrations. Now, parents... If your children know there are no consequences to misbehavior, what happens? Right? Not a good thing. If, if criminals out in society know that there are no consequences for their crimes, is it a good thing? If the innocent know that there are no consequences for those who have committed crimes against them, how do the innocent feel? It's injustice. Punishment is an aspect of justice, and yes, God does punish, and God has given authority to the state to execute justice and, and, and even uh, to, to enact a capital punishment, and I know that that's a, a controversial subject, but yes, God has given authority to the state to execute justice and to execute punishment, but when God executes, executes punishment and, and exercises this aspect of justice, He does it in a certain way. Notice what the Bible says about God's punishment. The Lord, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21 through 22, the Lord will rise up to accomplish His work, His strange work, it says, and perform His task, His alien task. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with that word alien, we're not talking about UFOs here. Uh, that word alien there, what it, it comes from the word to alienate. It means someone who is separate, someone who is uh, outside, some, something that is foreign. He's going to perform his, his strange task, his foreign task, something that he does not do, that he does not like to do, that is, that is not part necessarily of who he is. And he takes no joy in it. I've heard from the Lord Almighty. Some translations uh, translate this, for I have learned, I have heard from the Lord of hosts. And that Hebrew word there for almighty or for host is, is Sabaoth, not related to Sabbath, not related to Sabbath at all. In fact, there's a song in the hymnal that we sing about this, a mighty fortress, 
uh, is our God. And then it says, the Lord of Sabaoth, his name. What is Sabaoth? Sabaoth means exactly that. It's this characteristic of God who is, who is the God that is riding a horse. And there's an army of angels behind him, the angelic host. This is the Lord of Sabaoth, is the mighty God. He is the one with sword in hand. He is the God with eyes of fire. He is the God of feet of bronze who strikes the nations down with a rod of iron, with vengeance, and he executes the death penalty here. And he says, for I have heard from the Lord Almighty, the Lord who is strong and great and mighty in battle, I have heard a message from him, a message of destruction. But when that time comes, the Bible still says it's a strange work. It's an alien work for God. It is not something that he takes pleasure in. And so I submit to you today that the curses found in Genesis chapter 3 are descriptive of what would happen and not prescribed by God. How does that sound? The curses found in Genesis chapter 3 are descriptive of what would happen and are not prescripted nor prescribed by God. How does that sound? Do we need to take a little look at that, you know, munch on that a little bit, chew on that a little bit? Is it possible that God is not the agency of the curses here, but is merely describing what would happen? And you say, wait, pastor, but, uh, but it does say, I will. God says, I will do this. Well, let's look at another passage here, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But, what what did God say he would do? I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And I'm like, what? God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart? And, 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 and so why then does, if God is the one, the agency doing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, then, then why does God hold Pharaoh accountable? And, and why then does God pour all these plagues on Egypt if, if it's not Pharaoh hardening his heart, but God who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Do you, do you, see, what I, do you see what I mean? Why, why did he then take the firstborn of Pharaoh? If it's not Pharaoh, it's God who's hardening his heart. Or is it God who's hardening his heart? Here's another passage, Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, what? He hardened. Who hardened? Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. You see, what's happening here in this passage of of God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, this is a Hebrew expression where God is taking responsibility for his actions. God knows, listen, God knows that if he acts, if he acts, that it will have an impact on Pharaoh and that the response from Pharaoh will not be positive. Are you, are you following me here? God, God is at a point where he can no longer just, just stand by idly. God has to intervene here in this situation. But God knows that if he intervenes and if he takes action, Pharaoh will have a response to his action and that that, that response will not be positive. That response will not be repentance, but rather that God's work will harden, will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
for justice sake, for mercy, for love, God will intervene, even though it means Pharaoh will harden his heart. Are you guys following me here? And this is difficult because God says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But at the same time, God knows that he has to act. He has to intervene into life. And he knows that when he acts, some people will take it positively and some people will take it negatively. And so ultimately, God does take responsibility for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Do you guys follow that there? A professor at seminary illustrated it like this. He said, Jonathan, it's like uh, you have a stick of butter. How many of you like butter? You like butter? When I was a kid, I couldn't have, I couldn't have too much butter. And uh, sure enough, I just took a bite out of the stick of butter. And, and I realized that it just wasn't, uh, <laughs> you, that you could have too much butter. You know, I quickly learned my lesson on that one there. You have a stick of butter. And he says, and you put that stick of butter outside in the hot sun, what will happen to that stick of butter? It'll melt, right? But then you have another substance here. Does anyone know what that is there? Yeah, that's mud. That's clay or or mud, and and they're making bricks. You can see the bricks in the background there. They're making bricks. So you you take this earthen material, this clay, this mud, you you, you fashion it into into the shape of of a brick, and... You put it out in the sun. And what happens to that clay? Does it melt like the stick of butter? No, it hardens. Now, 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 what's changed here? The sun is still the same. The sun hasn't changed. The sun is doing the same thing. But the difference here is the material. It's the composition. And so when it comes to individuals, so everyone responds to God in a different way. But whatever way God intervenes in our life, He ultimately takes responsibilities for his action because he knows that intervening here will mean that some people may not be saved, that some people will be lost. He knows that certain people will harden their heart, but that other people will soften their hearts. And that's kind of life, isn't it? You know, life happens, um, and some people respond to certain events in a certain way, and other people will respond to certain events in another way. Not that I want to keep it before you, but when our son died, it's going to be almost two years when he died. It had a certain effect on our, on our hearts, and we've been going to counseling, grief counseling for it. And every single person in that room has responded to the loss of their child in a different way. Some mothers say, since the death of my son, I, I, I don't believe anything anymore. I used to believe in God, that God was a God of love, but I, I don't know what I believe anymore. I have no more faith anymore. You have the opportunity to, to go through a trial and, and become bitter and become angry and become dark, or you can go through that same trial and, and decide to still hold on to hope, to respond in a, in a positive way, to know that it's not the end, but that we can still look to God for hope. You see, everyone responds to God in a different way. Everyone responds to life circumstances in, a, in different ways, and we can either respond positively or we can respond negatively. But God ultimately takes responsibility for not answering our prayers for healing and uh, our prayers for a miracle. He takes responsibility for saying no. 
And it's up to us to surrender, to trust, to hope that as hard as it is and as bitter as it is, it comes from the hands of Him who is love. And so as we come back here to Genesis chapter 3 and the curses, these curses are not God's actions, but rather they are the result of God respecting Adam and Eve's choice. What did Adam and Eve choose? What did they choose? There's a tree, yeah, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God made every provision, and we, and we shared this in previous sermons, God made every provision for them not to eat that fruit, not to gain the knowledge of evil. But Adam and Eve decided, no, I, I want to I taste and see what evil looks like. I, I know what good looks like, but, but let me just taste a little bit of what, evil, of what evil looks like and tastes like. The curses of Genesis 3 are not from God's actions, but are rather the result of God respecting Adam and Eve's choice. They chose evil. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Now I'm going to share with you some quotations here. Uh, This is in the context, however, of David, but notice what it says here from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. God does not interpose to prevent the result of transgression. He, He forgives us. Yes, He does. But He does not interfere and prevent us from reaping the results of our transgression. He permits things to take their natural course. And so we can commit a crime, and we can steal something, and and, and we get caught, and, and we can repent of that, but we better believe that we still have to pay the penalty for that action. God forgives us, but there is still a price that we have to pay. God does not intervene. He allows things to carry on their natural course. Notice this other quotation here. It says, by their transgression, Adam and Eve had, what did they do? Opened a way for Satan to have access to them more readily. I I mean, at this point, where was the only place that they could have access to evil? At the tree, at the tree, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there in the center. If they wanted to be exposed to evil, that was the only place that they could be exposed to evil. But when they transgress and when they chose evil, now it says a way had been opened for Satan to have access to them more readily. In their fall from innocence to guilt, they would have far less strength to remain true and loyal. Wait a minute, what happened? They they were strong one minute, and then the next minute they're not strong. Where where, where did their strength go? What what happened to them? What what changed? Now, in their fall from innocence uh, to guilt, uh, something changed. And we shared a little bit about about the the emotions of, the negative emotions of of fear and anxiety and and of guilt and, and of humiliation. And it's a process here of, of the amygdala of the mind. In fact, I want to share a little bit more with you in our next sermon about the power of the mind. But what changed is that in their mind, something changed in their amygdala, in that sympathetic nervous system. The amygdala started pumping the seed of negative emotions. They started feeling shame, fear, guilt, humiliation. And the strength that they had was just sucked away. And they were frozen in their tracks. Have you ever had an experience like that? You know, where you're, where you're pretty confident and, and uh, you know what you're doing. And, and then all of a sudden, something just, 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 just blind, blindsides you. And then you have no more strength. 
You have no more confidence. You, you, you don't know what's going, what's, what's going to happen. But then the opposite is also true because the mind, again, is so powerful that there are certain times when the mind will, will pump out certain hormones, such as ad- adrenaline and, and others, where you are able to have more strength, physical strength, and more endurance, and you're able to, to, to run further and longer, and, and your lungs are able to take in more oxygen, and your blood vessels open. It, it's incredible. But the opposite is also true, because just as our mind can release hormones into our body to make us stronger... If certain things happen just right, we can actually lose our strength and become weaker. This is exactly what happened to them. Now, this passage also mentions about this, this idea of conscious guilt. And people who live with guilt, you, you can just see it. It, just, it sucks the life out of them. The mind is so powerful. There was a real physiological change. But I also want to say that they had no more strength because someone... Or something else had entered now. And he had unlimited, no, he had no boundaries to where he could have access to them. This, this passage here is descriptive of what they had chosen. They had chosen evil. They had chosen Satan. And God then allowed Satan to have access to them. They, they, they opened the door. It, it's like God gave them a house. Wait, wait a minute. Did you guys hear something? God gave them a house, and, and, and this person, the stranger, is knocking at the door. What, do we open the doors to strangers? And they wondered, who, who is it? And they opened. Should we, should we open the door? You know, and they open the door, and they let him inside the house, and now the devil takes over their house, and he can't get him out of the house. And, and now we're blaming God because the devil's in our house, but who's the one who let him in? We're the ones who let him in. I mean, that, that's, that's what's happening here. That's what's, that's, what, that's what's describing. They opened that door. They let Satan into their house. Notice this other quotation here. From, the t- from that time on, the race would be afflicted by Satan. Satan now had access to us, to this world, with no boundaries. He had complete access to us. They would be afflicted by Satan's temptations instead of the happy labor heretofore appointed them. I love that word, heretofore appointed them. Anxiety and toil would be their lot. Why? Because God did it? No, because someone else has entered here into the picture. They would be subject to disappointment, to grief, and to pain, and finally to death while they were under what? Notice it doesn't say the curse of God. While they were under the curse of sin. And now notice this, this, this other passage here that, that just kind of blew my mind. And this is, this is based on the parable of the sower where, where they, the, the owner of the field sows good seed. And then someone comes by night and they sow tares and then the servants wake up and they see the tares sown and they, and they ask the owner, then they say, didn't you sow good seed into the field? From whence hence are, have, have these tares come? And what does the owner say? An enemy has sowed these tares. God never made a thorn, a thistle, or a tear. These are Satan's work. 
the result of degeneration introduced by him among the precious things. That's why we spoke, we spoke about, you know, these two sermon, controversial sermons, the corruption of the human mind, of the human emotions, the corruption of, of, of the female person, the corruption of the male person. It's not that God is pronouncing these curses. It's no, we've let the devil in the house now. We've given him access, and now the devil is degenerating and corrupting everything. But as I was thinking also about this quotation here, God never made a thorn, a thistle, or a tear. I started thinking about thorns and thistles and tears, and and I guess then perhaps it's not by accident that in works of fantasy, and, and it's a forest scene, and the impression that needs to be given is that this forest is haunted, or that it's evil, or that it's dark, or you don't want to go in there. It's scary. Is it any wonder that they depict thorns all intertwined and briar patches? I mean, just think about it. There's something about the design of the thorn. Not just that it pricks you and it hurts you, but visually as well, its visual design speaks of caution and of evil and of fear. In contrast, when they want to give a scene that speaks of joy and love and safety, there's flowers and there's green meadows and there's light. And so even in design and form, in art and in visual expression through thorns and through thistles and through briars, it is the character of Satan that is manifested here and his design and his engineering and his ingenuity. So there are certain things in nature that don't necessarily speak that God is love, but rather that speak to us that Satan is. Is evil. In this passage, God says, cursed will be the ground, not because God cursed it, but because we've let someone else in. Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Now, now right here, she's she's speaking literally of, of seeds, of actual seeds, but I want to be able to take this quotation here and apply it homiletically or, or, or apply it metaphorically. It's Satan, she says, who planted these seeds. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden. But after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. And just, just keep, your, keep your mind eye on that word, seeds of death. We'll come back to that. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing. And by his ingenious methods of amalgamation... He has corrupted the earth with tares. A word there for amalgamation is an old 1800s word for genetic engineering. That's what that means. My friends, the devil is a real being. He's a real person. And he's not a dummy. He is smart. He is wise. He is intelligent. He knows more than any of us could ever know. The scripture describes him saying that he was, he was the second next to, next to God and to Jesus Christ. He was there on the right-hand side of God in heaven. And here she says, all tares are sown. Every noxious herb is of his sowing and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation. He has corrupted the earth. And so I started thinking about this literally. And I think, you know, there's certain plants that we don't like, right? We don't like, uh, let me see here. Uh, Jerry, what, what are all those... Um, What's all that weeds out that we have here in the, in the, in the front yard? What's that one? The, the, the round ones. What are those round ones? 
dollar weed, right? You know, we, we just, you know, it annoys us. You know, we can't get rid of that thing, right? Um, there's also that other one, that, that long one there that, oh, crabgrass. That's right, where you just, you just have to pull it out, roots and everything all together. And, and then there's also these plants called poison ivy and poison oak. And you want to stay away from those plants, but not just poison ivy and poison oak. And I'm going to keep reading here. Poison ivy. There's also poison berries. And coming back to this concept of fantasy, poison apples. Perhaps hearkening back to the Garden of Eden and the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there are plants out there that are harmful to humans. But then there's other plants, like maybe tobacco. What is the purpose and function of tobacco? Cannabis, I heard. What's the purpose of cannabis? What's the purpose of the coca plant? Now, we have a purpose for it, right? We've turned it into something. But beyond that, what purpose do they have? Could it possibly have been that these are noxious herbs that Satan has genetically engineered to bring ruin and death to our, to our world. There is no place upon the earth where the track of the serpent is not seen and his venomous sting felt. The whole earth is defiled and the curse is increasing as transgression increases. It's as if sin and death is some form of virus entering our very system, corrupting it, tainting it. A virus to which we have no cure, and it has spread everywhere on this earth. Do you remember that phrase, the seeds of death? Christ never planted the seeds of death in our system. It was the devil, it was Satan who planted them. And so what you see on the screen is a a visual representation of perhaps what that would look like. This dark substance entering into our very being, infecting our DNA and destroying it. Destroying us. Destroying nature. The character, personality, and traits of Satan are now stamped on creation. And so every mixed message in nature, when nature acts out in lies and in deception and in confusion... Do you remember the transvestite insect in the Amazon? Do you remember it? And if you don't remember it, I encourage you to listen to the podcast on it. It's it's survival of the fittest, remember. No, it's not because that's how it's supposed to be. And when we see violence and predation in nature, again, remember that National Geographic video clip of the lioness and the zebra. And, And we love lions and we love lionesses. We also love zebras. We know they have to eat. But there's just something about the way they have to eat that inside we sense that that's not the way it should be. Rather, it's because of the character and the personality and the traits of Satan. And since evolutionary scientists and theorists have rejected the supernatural revelation of Scripture... They then look to the natural world for insights into human behavior and morality and ethics. I came across this headline a couple of weeks ago. How many of you saw this? You know, it's not by accident that they published this in the news. There is a purpose for it. There is a reason behind it. There is intentionality behind that. 
Same-sex penguin couple welcomes their first baby. Two males who, you know, sat on an egg and the egg popped and, or, you know, the, the chick came out. What, why are they posting this? It's not by accident. It's intentional. There's a message behind, behind this. And when we see things like this out in nature, this confusion, again, it's not because that's the way things are supposed to be. It's because of the character and the personality and the traits of Satan are now stamped on creation. I was reminded of this passage here in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, which is happening today in our secular world. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, empty, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And so as we come back to the curses of Genesis chapter 3, we realize that it's not God who is cursing this created world. God is not a God who curses. God, in fact, in this biblical passage, God is the one who seeks those who have strayed from the way. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they hear the footsteps of God walking towards them. God was seeking them. God wanted to talk with them. God wanted to understand, Adam, what's happened? Eve, what's happened? And you see, the penalty for their disobedience was not cursing, What was the penalty? It was death. For on the day that you eat from the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. God's penalty for their disobedience was not cursing them. God's penalty was death. And yet God was merciful to them because they didn't die on that day. They didn't die because the biblical passage tells us in verse 21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Adam and Eve did not die because a lamb died in their place. And and with that lamb, he covered their nakedness and he covered their shame. And that lamb motif then, then, then is taken through the Old Testament and even into the Old Testament where that lamb becomes a symbol for Jesus. It becomes a symbol of how much God loved us that even though we're the ones who let the devil in and we're the ones who made the mistake, he in his love, he sends his only begotten son so that his son now has to die and pay the penalty for our transgression. How, how, how about love? How many of you would do that? I know I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But God loves us so much that he's figured a way to save us and that lamb is a symbol of Jesus. My friends, God is not a God who curses, but he is a God who blesses, a God who forgives, a God of second chances, a God of grace, a God who seeks us out in our nakedness, in our shame, and he covers us, and he clothes us, and he restores us. My friends, God is love. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with us on www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.